Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. So I'm excited to announce this new sponsor, and this one is for people like me who may be curious about your levels of certain nutrients and minerals. We know on a carnivore diet that the requirements for certain minerals and nutrients are different than the recommended daily amounts, and we also know that we aren't getting as much of certain minerals and nutrients. So how can you know if you're getting enough, and more importantly, if you're absorbing those things? If you're taking, for instance, vitamin D or magnesium, You may want to know whether the supplement is actually doing anything, or you may just want to know how much of certain vitamins you're getting through your food. So what's one way to accurately test all of this? In this case, I'm talking about Upgraded Formulas, Upgraded Hair Test Kit, and their consultation. And I had Barton Scott on, the founder of Upgraded Formulas, to talk about this. He's fantastic. And their minerals can really help you absorb things that can vanquish those hidden deficiencies that may be affecting your thyroid, your adrenal, or other things. So check out the test and consultation at UpgradedFormulas.com and save 15% on your first purchase with the code CARNIVORE15 at checkout. Thanks and enjoy the show. Dr. Jen Unwin is a clinical psychologist specializing in food addiction who has decades of experience helping people change their ways to improve their lives. She recently released a book titled Fork in the Road, A Hopeful Guide to Food Freedom. Welcome to the show, Dr. Unwin. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, So, you know, I'd love to hear about your own journey and personal history with diet. Um, And then maybe we, from there, we can go into like becoming a clinical psychologist and how those worlds merged for you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh gosh, I, I won't. I won't give you the, uh, <laughs> the, the the super long version of the long version's great. Long version. My great. own story. Okay, so I'm a really typical sugar addict, food addict. Looking back, I started. Some of my earliest memories are about food, particularly carby, sweet, fatty. You know those sorts of things. Um, chocolate, sweets, cakes, biscuits. Uh, loved those all as a, as, a, as a kid and was always trying to kind of work out how to get more than my fair share, you know, in a family. Oh, how can I get more of that? <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, sneaking back to the kitchen, um, you know, even quite young or, you know, if there's a family party, you know, you relatively unsupervised and you could go and kind of sneak back to the buffet and have all the, all the, all the good stuff. So, um, that's how it started. And I think that's how it starts with a lot of us actually were just really born with that tendency to, to like those foods and to kind of respond to them psychologically, if you like. Right. Um, so, so that was going on. And then of course, you know, what, what happens, but, um, 
things things always happen to us, don't they? As, as we're growing up, or as we're getting older, my, my dad was unwell. His brother died. It was, you know, there, there were sort of things that went on. I'm not saying they were sort of traumas out out of the sort of usual for things that happen in families, but they are reasons perhaps to sort of turn more to food as a, as a comfort or as a sort of amusement or, you know, just as a way of sort of uh, getting, not so much getting through the day really, but yeah, something to do in the day. Uh, it was quite boring in the, in the uh, 70s. <laughs> we didn't have all the things, all the distractions <laughs> that we have these days. Um, and that obviously, not obviously, because not all food addicts are overweight, but it, it led me to be an overweight teenager. And again, in the 70s and 80s, that was still relatively unusual. So I was the only big girl in the in the class. I went to a girls' high school. And I think that, you know, that has its effects on you. Um, and looking back, my, my mum was definitely a food addict. And that's another thing that we know is that you know these tendencies do tend to to run in families um and but of course we didn't we d- it didn't have this name back it back back then and so she was a, a serial dieter so of course uh, a i was at a girl's school and b, b my mom was a serial dieter um who again wasn't overweight really looking back but was always on some diet and i think it was a, this thing that came in you know late 70s came from the states this low fat thing low fat dieting so we used to go together on these crazy diets. I remember some memorable ones like the grapefruit and egg diets and this kind of thing, none of which was sustainable or pleasant in any way as a way of sort of losing weight. But of course, it always led, right. it always lead back to, to weight gain because you just can't, you can't live on egg and grapefruit, you know. Uh, uh, well, I suppose you probably could just about survive, but it wouldn't be much much fun so yeah so and then that's really set up a pattern for all my adult life of um gaining weight and then losing weight because I'm a pretty determined person and if I could find a new scheme I would I would follow it as long as I could but then there was always this issue about you know you can't live like that forever on this diet so um and I hadn't understood that it was really the sugars and the carbohydrates and the processed foods that were the problem so they'd always creep back in because of the the world we live in so the weight would go up and down and then I had been uh, oh it's at least 10 years ago now so late 40s then um I I was you know one January feeling very down in the mouth wandering around a supermarket found a book called Escape the Diet Trap by Dr John Briffer who's a British uh, GP so that must have that must have come out about 11 or 12 years ago that book and I think it's still in print um and basically what he was describing there was the science and practice of a low carbohydrate diet so he explained about insulin and sugar and blood sugars and all you know leptin and ghrelin and all of this sort of stuff and i it made complete sense to me because uh you know i had a sort, sort of sciencey background i'd done biology and chemistry and all these things so uh so that made complete sense so so um in, in the, I thought this is my new thing. So I went cold turkey the following Monday morning and cut out all, all sugars and carbohydrates and felt um, pretty ghastly, as you can imagine, you know, like people do when they first uh, first do this sort of low carbohydrate keto stuff. If they if they haven't been sort of um, 
easing themselves in. I, I felt pretty rough for about, about a week, but he said in the book that you would. So I thought, right, this is fine. Okay. And then day eight, I felt absolutely amazing and thought, this is like a miracle. You know, I've, I've found the answer. I wasn't hungry. Uh, and so, yeah, so low carb was, was the big thing. And that was a big turning point for me, to be fair. It wasn't, it's not been the whole answer, but uh, it was a, a big chunk of the answer. Um and then you probably know, or some of the listeners will know, that uh, my husband's a, um, a general practitioner here in the UK. And um, we decided to start working on a project for the patients in his practice um, who had pre-diabetes or diabetes type 2. And um, that project has been running ever since. And we've spoken about that, published about it. And you've got some pretty unique data there of helping people with um type 2 and, and other health conditions actually i mean um o- overweight fatty liver um heart failure all all sorts of patients have now benefited in his practice but the main data that he's collecting is around patients with type 2 diabetes and he's now got well over 100 people into drug free uh, remission of type 2 uh, diabetes so, and they save over 60,000 pounds a year on diabetes drugs alone in comparison to the net the, the average what the average spend in, in his area so wow. that's been the most amazing project yeah and and uh yeah continues to continues to go on so so that was good but as i say it wasn't it wasn't quite the whole story for me i could still overeat and start to doing that thing that a lot of people do kind of keto baking you know and all of this making fake <laughs> making fake bread and fake cakes and trying to sort of replace those things and then being able to overeat keto foods like peanut butter and for me cheese and things like that so I thought well this isn't it's not quite the whole story and I was sort of getting a bit despondent again when I heard I think it was Karen Thompson at Low Carb Denver who was talking about uh sugar addiction being her like as a child she was the sugar addict and you know this this was this was her problem and these were her symptoms I remember thinking, hmm, that's an interesting concept. It kind of, kind of applies to me. Why, why didn't that? And the main thing that struck me was, you know, I'm, a, I'm a psychologist. I've worked with people with addictions, other addictions, alcohol, um, smoking, and so on. What, you know, what, why on earth hadn't it occurred to me that that my relationship with food was very like like that? <laughs> um, and then I came across the work of uh, Bitten Johnson. Again, a lot of people will have heard of Bitten. She's a Swedish uh, registered nurse, but who's worked in this in this area for longer than anyone, I think, and is really one of the, the best known and um, skilled clinicians in, in sugar addiction. And she now runs training courses for, for, for people like me who want to find out more about it so that we can go on and help other people. So I when I, I, so I retired a little bit early when I was 55 from the NHS that I'd worked in for over 32 years um, to devote myself to this topic. So I went went ahead and um, trained with Bitten Johnson um, and um, also, as, as you said, during, so it was during lockdown one that I wrote Fork in the Road, um, which was really the book um, that I, I wish I'd had when I was about 12. I think I I could have understood all the, the concepts at that at that time, and um, if someone had given me that the information that's in in the book, I I 
would have understood it and and put it into practice it, it it's it's simple really it's simple advice it's not always easy to practice for those of us with this problem but the the, the fundamentals are, are pretty simple really um so i did that and the profits for that go to the public health collaboration which is a charity that david and i uh support greatly here in the uk which is oh, a, no a charity trying to spread good good advice about public health mostly to do with nutrition but also to do with you know exercise and so on and we've got um a conference coming up soon which i'll tell people about maybe in a bit more detail because uh anyone who's in in the uk or europe or even the states who wants to come over um is uh, we've got a, a day on on food addiction with lots of international speakers so um and that's under the auspices of this um this charity that we support um, and then I've started um, collaborating with someone else who was in my um, course with with Bit and Heidi Yeva, who's a nutritionist, and we run online courses and we're we're collecting data. We're, we're doing it as a study, a bit like David and I did for the patients with diabetes. We're we're running online groups for people with food addiction, and then we're um, we're, we're collecting data. Team in Sweden that are doing a similar intervention um so so yes it's been it's been very interesting uh personal journey um but also a professional journey and there there are so few people really we don't really know enough at all about how to help people with this problem uh, for various reasons which i can uh, definitely go into but i you know we definitely need to there definitely needs to be more research and more clinicians working in this area and, and sharing sharing information about how to help people with this um, particular problem because research does seem to show that about a conservative estimate is that about 8% of, of adults um, struggle with this and that would be 4.3 million adults in the UK and goodness knows how many adults um, in the US. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, yeah. In like almost 30 million. <laughs> At this point, yeah. that's crazy. Thanks to Bioptimizers for sponsoring the show. And I'm really excited to tell you guys about an excellent deal they're offering this November. This is the biggest blowout deal they will be offering all year. So if there's a time to stock up, it is now. What they're offering is over $200 worth of free gifts and a huge discount all month long on their Magnesium Breakthrough products. Their Magnesium Breakthrough is a full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief, better sleep, and mental health all in one bottle. They're offering all sorts of awesome free gifts and products worth over $200 with select purchases. All month long, they're offering 10% off using my unique code. And you can only get this exclusive deal through my link, special for you listeners. You won't find it on Amazon or even the Bioptimizers website. Go to magnesiumbreakthrough.com slash carnivore and use code carnivore to get your discount and free gifts today. Thanks so much and have a great day. Super, super fascinating how, how that evolved for you. And when you were training to be a, a clinical psychologist, were you taught about food addiction at all? Was that part of your training or, or something that's just completely evolved since then? Yeah, no, completely evolved because I trained. I qualified back in 1990, quite a long time ago. Um, no, not not at all. And in fact, 
I don't think it beyond it's on any curriculum anywhere, and that's largely because it's not a recognised. I'm I'm doing inverted commas condition. Um, it's not in. You guys would have the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, for Mental Health Disorders, and that's that's under the auspices of the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, it's it's not listed in there. So things like obviously things like gambling are listed, alcohol, you know, so those sort of substance use disorders, um, gambling, which is a sort of um, a kind of process, <laughs> a process addiction. Um, here in Europe, we have a thing called the ICD, which is the International Classification of Diseases. And uh, that's under the auspices of the World Health Organization. And likewise, there are criteria for substance use disorder. Um, which would include alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, etc., but nothing for sugar or food addiction. Um, it's not it's not a recognised disorder. So there's that's why partly there's been so little research because it's hard to get research funding for something that in theory doesn't officially exist. Yeah, and also hard to to get money for intervention studies. So. Um, Obviously, most interest has gone into thing the eating disorders like um, binge eating disorder, bulimia, anorexia, because those those are the sort of recognised disorders. But um, I think we've yet to work out what are the what are the overlaps between those different conditions and and food addiction. Although there is lots of evidence that binge eating disorder and food addiction overlap massively. One paper found a like ninety six percent overlap you know that people with binge eating disorder 96 percent of them had would seem to have food addiction if you wow. look at the, the yale the yale food addiction score is the main scale that's sort of being used in the in the research up to date um but yeah there's very little on on intervention studies because as i say it kind of doesn't exist obviously there are um organizations like overeaters anonymous and some other sort of aa type um, groups that that help people with these overeating issues, but they don't collect. You know, by their very nature, they don't collect data. So um, we haven't got uh, any outcome data. So that's why Heidi and I set up this this uh, this study to try and answer the question: If we do this group intervention based on the ideas really in Fork in the Road, um, you know, what happens to people? How how do they do? And we're going to present the first follow-up so the sort of end of group we've got end of group data for about just over 30 people in the UK and, the, and similar in in America and we're going to present that data on, on May the 20th at this conference in the UK um, which is as I say under the auspices of the public health collaboration um, and Bitten Johnson and um, lots of other people in the space will be coming over to, to Bristol uh, to join in that day. So yes, so if anybody's listening and they want to um, come along and, and meet us all and find out really, you know, the, the latest on this, then they're, they're really welcome. So from America, we've got Dr. Paul Early, who's just stepped down as the president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. So he's he's very well versed in all kinds of addiction, but he does also himself work with people with, with food addiction. So uh, he and he's a fantastic speaker, so we're, we're really, really happy to have him. Yeah, so I think things are. I don't think no, I don't think it's included in any professional training. Um, I think people are sort of, you know, there's even a kind of that 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 
there's a lot of pushback. So I think people think, you know, a lot of people say, well, that that doesn't exist. You know, you can't get addicted to food. You need to eat food. Mm. And I suppose what I'd say to that, well, is yes, um, we do need to eat food. And that's why it makes it really hard for people who have to have this food addiction problem because you don't need to drink alcohol, right? You can avoid bars and buying wine and, and not have it in the house, but we all need to have food in the house. Um, right. The the thing is, what which foods? And of course, the rise of eating disorders, mental health problems, these food addiction problems really tracks the rise of sugar and ultra processed food availability um and those foods that we did not evolve to be and i suppose this is where the carnivore thing comes in you know we didn't evolve to to have the amount of sugars um weird fats and foods that combine salt fat and sugar uh, as we do now and they absolutely hijack the reward center in the brain so that anyone who's listening who does struggle to moderate those foods, I mean, you're, it's completely normal. <laughs> Your brain's acting completely normally as if it was, as, as, it, as it evolved to, you know, kind of um, help you to overeat those things if you ever found any. So if you ever found any honey, fruit, nuts, but what a good idea to be able to overeat them um, and, you know, not have an, have an off switch. Um, it's not a great idea now because our our primitive brains are living in this crazy environment that just to me you know even since my childhood as as you know, we've all gone mad with this office cake and every single celebration like christmas easter valentines mother's day <laughs> uh birthdays holidays are all based around how much sort of non non food how much of these weird food-like substances could can we eat or give each other or you know somehow it's a it's a gift to give somebody a massive humongous um you know ridiculous cake (laughs) you know like that's somehow that's a kind thing to do it won't be a kind thing to do to me and it's basically a metabolic poison but we're doing it and we're doing it to our kids and there's evidence that for every adult now with these food addiction problems there are there are two kids because the environment they're growing up in you know, it's it's just getting worse and worse. Food at the checkouts, you know, oh, you know, you mean if you don't give your kids sweets, you know, that's as part of growing up is that you have the, and really all these messages that we've absorbed from the food manufacturers uh, that have, have sort of marketed food as a treat, a reward, a comfort, a kind, some kind of entertainment, you know, when it, food should just be seen as food. And and not a commercial, you know, it's not a commercial enterprise in that sense. You know, we shouldn't be persuaded to buy all these weird foods. Really, we should all be investing in a proper food um, system with sustainable farming, local, seasonal. I'm on my soapbox now. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> you know, proper the proper human food, really, that we we evolved to to eat and which doesn't hijack our brain. Yeah. How did we get to like uh, two questions, I guess. One is how did we get to like 8% and these foods being so available and like, is it a reflection of the dietary guidelines and that whole story or is it something, something else? Um, And then secondly, like what separates someone who does become, you, you, 
you commented that these things affect everyone. It's normal to have that response to these hyperpalatable foods. But what separates someone who is becomes food addicted versus not? Um, like yeah. someone who falls into the 8% versus doesn't. Great questions. Yeah. So how have we got ourselves in this mess? Um, yeah, that's it's not really my absolute expert topic, but I would say, yeah, there was obviously, you know, from what I've read, there was influence, wasn't there, on on the committee that si- decided about the dietary guidelines in the first place. There were shenanigans, wasn't there, <laughs> about, uh, you know, was it sugar and and uh, or, or was it fat that was the problem? And these kind of um, debates between uh, Yudkin, who said that it was um, it was the sugar, wasn't it? He wrote that book, Pure White and Deadly. Yeah. Uh, but he he was vilified, wasn't he? By uh, who was it now? Who who did the data on the fat stuff? Willits, was it? I can't, I can't remember exactly. Anyway, someone will, you ha- you can have someone on who'll tell you more about that. <laughs> um, um, Belinda Feck is really good on this topic about the dietary guidelines and Kellogg's and people like that who had these influences in in the early days. And then, you know, there's a huge, obviously there's a just gazillions of, of money in the, in the, in the food industry and it, and these, the, and and a kind of an addictive model. So when, oh, that that was the other strand of the story, I think, isn't it? Is that when the big tobacco companies saw the writing on the wall about, cigarettes being finally recognized as as harmful in the end um because they resisted that with dodgy research and and all kinds of propaganda for years um and then finally the writing was on the wall and uh, a lot of the big food companies at the time and then brought to bear their marketing and sales strategies um around packaging and advertising and you know selling stuff to kids and stuff like that they 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 just sort of uh you know sidestepped into into the food industry and obviously it's it's great for the big food companies if we get hooked to a particular brand or a particular snack food isn't it a particular kind of bar of chocolate um because when we even when we see it you know we get this kind of dopamine response you know we see it we start wanting it they advertise it to us we start wanting it they you see the colors and the packaging and you start wanting it then you start craving it and then you find yourself either going to the cupboard to get one or you know even getting in the car to to go and buy some or when you when you're in the supermarket you see it and you want it um so i you know i think it's a it's a complicated and and long answer, isn't it, as as to how we've how we've got ourselves in this in this pickle. And I think the main answer is that you know we do all love that stuff. As I say, it kind of lights up our brains because there's dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, endorphins, all the feel good, all the feel good factor. Uh, the brains light up when we get those things. And I suppose that segues into the second question as to why some of us are more prone to this than, than others. And I think there are several factors there, exactly the same with like, well, why, why doesn't everyone become an alcoholic? Because most adults will try alcohol at some point. Um, and I think I think there's several answers there. One, as I say, I think there is this genetic component. So often when I talk to women, let's say, who've got this problem, there's some, you know, quite often there's someone in the family, like maybe dad had a bit of an alcohol problem or Mom was also a 
seemed to be a food addict or the grandparents were very, very that way. Um, so there's the kind of genetic thing. And then, of course, there's the the whole early exposure thing. So um, did we live in families that that really loved all this stuff or, you know, even bottle feeding, I think. I mean, I've not got no evidence for this, but a lot of people I talked to were were bottle fed rather than breastfed. And there was a lot of sugar in the formula as well back in, I think there probably still is back in the day. So were we were we breastfed? What kind of what kind of meals and access to those sorts of foods did we have as young people? Um there's some evidence that our, those of us who have this tendency, our brains do light up in a big way <laughs> when when we eat those things. So this these kind of neurophysiological differences, if you like, in some of us. Um, and then sometimes trauma has an effect, you know, where those tendencies were there, but then they're really, really sort of hammered home by people using food as a way to, to self-soothe or to, you know, to, to kind of numb themselves at, a, at an early age. Um, because really sugar is the one psychoactive substance that we have access to as young people. We don't give our kids caffeine, nicotine and alcohol on, on the whole, but we really do give them sugar. And in fact, there's a really famous example if people go on um, Google, Eric Clapton, who's a famous, he's famous uh, singer, guitarist, isn't he? Um, who had multiple drug problems when uh, there's an interview where he's asked you know what did what did it start with you know cocaine or whatever and he said no sugar <laughs> he said when I was a kid I couldn't I just couldn't get enough sugar and that's the first way that I used to used to numb myself so uh, sugar can be that first step and it can lead you know um it, it's sort of sort of a gate a gateway drug so that um you've probably heard the fact that you know when people give up smoking let's say they they quite often put on weight and that's usually because they're trying to sort of get that dopamine high from from sweets or they're sucking sweets as like an alternative behavior and the same with alcohol i i, I have it on good authority that at aa meetings there are a lot of sweets and cakes and often people turn to that as a way to keep them off the the alcohol so uh yeah it's uh it's an interesting one. Um, I don't know if that answers your question fully. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think that that helps a lot. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask, I, I definitely want to get into the intervention you spoke about um, that that you're now implementing um, and and going to to talk about the results of. Um, but before that, I wanted to ask, what are maybe some fallacies and mistakes people make when thinking about food addiction and trying to pay attention to their foods? Are there things, myths or um, mistakes people make focusing on the wrong things? Yeah, that's a really good question. Okay, so so I, th- I think you have to get the food right. That's like the sort of foundation, if you like, is, is getting your own personal food plan to be, again, I'm doing inverted commas, ab- abstinent for you. So I think the mistakes that people make, are they go, oh, keto's a good food plan for sugar addicts because there's no sugar in it. Or carnivore, you know, actually carnivore is quite a good food plan, but it might be a bit extreme for some people. So so that they would take that food plan and, and, and try and just apply it. Now, if you do that, um, like I was saying, you know, you can have, there is this bit of a 
fashion for sort of keto cupcakes and keto and, and keto pizza and and that you can find recipes for all those things can't you um and a, f- a food addict is probably going to not be successful with that kind of what would you call it is it dirty keto where you can sort of have yeah make keto ice cream and stuff like that right uh really we respond much better when we're not recreating those kinds of recreating the drug foods we're still going to overeat them even if they're keto um so a, a better plan is much more like a clean keto so um you know meat uh low carb vegetables fish eggs um you know plain as we evolve to eat it food real food let's not you know add in weird stuff <laughs> uh, like sweeteners and so on because they're just going to keep the keep the sweet taste going and and they still they still act in the in the reward center so that's often really hard for people using sweeteners in the short term is fine obviously if you're trying to transition off sugar um transitioning onto sweeteners is fine in the short term in the long term you're going to have to give those up as as well um to get into a really solid sort of recovery so that that's one example where you know people can make make mistakes i think the other is potentially cutting out things that you don't ha- you wouldn't have to necessarily cut out you'd actually be fine having um and it, it's it's such a unique thing to the person i think that's the that, that's the message i'd give there isn't one food plan that suits all um food addicts because some people are perfectly fine with che- a bit of cheese they can manage a bit of cheese or a few nuts I'm not one of those people. And there are lots of other people like me who just can't moderate cheese, which would be a normal keto carnivore food, right? But um, I just, it just, for me, leads to ridiculous amounts of cheese <laughs> and cravings for other things as well. Mm. So I, I've had to learn over the year, you know, this is where how we learn. I started off low carb. I've tried keto. I've tried sort of strict carnivore as well. And you, you kind of come to a place where, you know the foods that light up your reward center a little bit too much and those that that are actually okay and they just like food and you get on with the rest of your day and don't keep thinking about them uh or wake up in the morning thinking about them that kind of thing um yeah so that's those are some of the mistakes that people make sweeteners um alcohol's another one because of course it's exactly the same part of the brain that lights up <laughs> and um Alcohol can really derail people because it causes more cravings or it can disinhibit you. So you make kind of poor choices. So, um, again, it's not what everyone wants to hear who has this issue. But if you're a if you're a uh, sort of died in the wall <laughs> uh, food addict, you're probably going to need to give up alcohol in the end. I, I, I have now. And uh, again, yeah, individual see how you get on, be honest with yourself about what you can't moderate and what you can. That That's the key really to, to identifying it. If you can't moderate it and you've had several tries, you know, like say nut butters or something, I was, they were absolutely, I could not moderate those things. I used to get the spoon in the jar and just be away. So if you've got foods like that, I, I think you just have to be honest and say, I can't, you know, I've tried, I can't moderate that. I, I'm, I'm just going to need to cut that out for my own health and mental sanity. And um, what else, other than cutting out foods, um, what else 
is involved in, in the intervention in what yes. you found to help people? Um, and how long does it usually take? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, okay. So, so we, what we actually start with is, is, is not the food in a way we start with the, um, the sort of by sort of explaining to people that, that biochemistry of, you know, these foods for you are releasing these chemicals and they're rewiring your brain you know this is this is what an addict's brain looked like and this is this is what happens that you get this dopamine release serotonin etc and that that's it's it's kind of not your fault it's that your primitive brain is is driving you to do these behaviors i think a lot of people feel very um self-blaming they feel very ashamed of their behavior because it's kind of unusual you know it's an unusual behavior and we want to sort of hide it from other people we think somehow we're to blame so the first step is really us explaining the brain chemistry stuff to them and how many of us there are in in the world so that they can feel it's it's not you know none of this has been their fault they just haven't had the right information and they're living in a crazy world <laughs> crazy food environment how anyone is not a food addict in the world we live in is is the mystery to me when i meet someone who can moderate stuff like i've got a, a mother-in-law and a sister-in-law who can just have a little bit of something and oh that's nice and then yeah <laughs> you know they don't even need to look at it or think about it or you know i'd be just staring at this <laughs> the plate the rest of the stuff on the plate i'd be so drawn to it but they know they're, they're completely fine with it so um yeah so we, we explain all all of that and the fact that yeah that this sort of primitive brain you know that thing we that food addicts do where um you know they may decide right no more biscuits kind of thing and they go off to work and they have a good day and they come home and then somebody's opened a pack of biscuits or there's two on a plate however hard they say to themselves you know logically i'm not having those there's almost this disembodied arm that reaches out this this sort of primitive part of them that grabs <laughs> grabs that food and puts it in the mouth before they've almost been able to engage engage the frontal lobes if you like and people often say that this kind of it's almost like it's an automatic thing that they they don't have any control over so you know we we explain why that is and you know why it's not their fault etc cetera, etc cetera. But then we also go into, you know, it's only it's only certain things that have hijacked the brain. So just like um, for people with an alcohol problem, that the advice would be, you know, the only way out of that. You're not going to think your way out of an alcohol problem. You have to be abstinent from alcohol or you can't think your way out of a nicotine addiction. You have to quit. You have to quit having nicotine. You have to quit having alcohol. So for us, we have to quit having our drug foods. And as I say, there are some real commonalities, like it's sugar, it's grains, it's all processed food. But then there are some gray areas um, that individuals may, you know, may need to. I mean, that's a great start, cutting out sugars, grains and ultra processed food. And that's a really, really big step. And sometimes people do it all in one, like I did, uh, and then try and battle through. And some people, you know, do it in a sort of stepwise way. Um, cutting things out slowly or cutting out certain cats, certain certain foods and trying to replace them. And then we talk about, you know, actually, you know, those things aren't foods anyway. You don't need to eat those foods. Those foods are kind of become entertainment. But what we need to eat is protein and fats and, and minerals to, to build a body and build a brain. So we talk about, you know, the kinds of foods that should definitely be in your plan, eating enough protein, eating enough fat. 
um, you know, eating, not snacking, but, you know, having, having good meals, feeling satisfied by your food. So it's not a, it's not about a diet mentality at all. It's more about a health mentality. So we go through all of that. Um, and then really the rest of the program is about things to do with, with maintenance, because of course, if you're taking away somebody's, um, the thing that's been sort of, you know, they've been using to sort of keep their mental balance or to, um, to get through life, uh, to not feel stressed or to, you know, to cheer themselves up, then they, they're going to need other strategies. So it's about what else can you replace? How else can you get your dopamine, your oxytocin, your serotonin and your endorphins? And of course, um, exercise is an absolutely key thing because it hits all of those and it's so good for people's mental health. So we do try and encourage that, but also other, other hobbies or connections to other people. People have often really withdrawn from life, from hobbies and socializing and you know, the world's just become smaller and smaller and kind of um, all wrapped around this this food issue. So we really encourage people to have a sort of recovery program for themselves, um, incorporating a lot of other activities that are beyond, beyond the food and then coping with social situations. You know, a lot of people, as I say, feel very ashamed. So they're trying to sort of appear, in again, in inverted commas, normal, because we're all normal, but they try not to appear to have an issue or want to have those conversations with people where they go out for a meal with friends and they say they have to explain why they're not having a, a dessert. Um, you know, they just would rather do it quietly <laughs> and not have to sort of get into a discussion. But often we we do end up having to have the courage to get into a discussion um, or to ask the people near us to support us because otherwise they're going to be undermining us. And we all know people who um who you knew who maybe love the sugar themselves who who put plates of cupcakes under our noses on a regular basis or you know there's a there's a corner at work that's uh you know just sugar sugar city um we, we've all got those sort of challenging situations which we individually have to find a way to negotiate otherwise we're going to slip back right and when we slip back we go right back into it um just as bad if we as we were before if if not worse often on occasion um uh but that that's how people learn and then they get six months follow-up with us which is where they have if they have these slip-ups and most people will at some point we try and encourage them to to really analyze what led up to that problem and how they would do it differently next time so we just completely learn, use them as a learning experience and help people get back on get back on track um so they can move move forward again yeah that's fantastic and um what are some resources people can use uh, obviously your book um but others for for better understanding how to deal with sugar addiction and processed food addiction yes absolutely yes some really good resources now so yeah there's my book there's other books like vera tarman's food junkies and there's a fantastic podcast I'd really highly recommend to people, the Food Junkies podcast. It's got Dr. Vera Tarman on, but also Molly Payne-Shab and Clarissa Kennedy, who are food addiction counsellors who are also involved in our study. Uh, they're over in North America. Fantastic podcast. And they've had, you know, all the, all the people in this space talking, talking on their, their podcast. So that's a really good one. 
Um, if you're in the States, there's also a community called Sugar X Global. Um, and that's uh, Anna Fruling, Dave Wolf, and Judy Wolf, who also trained with Heidi and I. And they're an amazing team over there. You can, uh, they do some free um, cravings challenges and things like that. But you can, you can join their community if you want uh, long term support. Um, we, I've got a, a website called forkintheroad.co.uk. And also we did some, I mentioned about the public health collaboration that are doing this conference. So if you go to the public health collaboration website, www.phcuk.org, you can buy tickets for the event on May the 20th. Um, but also um, under resources there, there are a few pages on food, food addiction that you can look at that have got other um, books than podcasts listed. There are quite a few podcasts now. Um, the last thing to say would be if anyone knows about Clubhouse, which is a sort of audio, um, an audio app that you can get on your phone, Clubhouse, on a Wednesday at 6 p.m. UK time, which is kind of lunchtime in the States, um, we have a room called Fork in the Road and we have a chat uh, for an hour with either with a special guest or on a particular topic always to do with food addiction. And you can come along and just listen or you can you can join in the chat. Um, so, yeah, there's there's more and more resources now coming that, that people can can access and connect. I would advise that people, you know, do try and connect to the community in some way to get that support. It's really, really tough to do this uh, on on your own. Yeah, that's fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing, Dr. Unwin. This has been really educational and enlightening for me and I'm sure for the audience as well. Um, I'll, of course, have links to everything of yours in the show notes. Um, and definitely people should go out, check out the public health collaboration. I actually, Sam Feltham, um, mm-hmm. who's, I believe, the, the founder or the head of public health collaboration, he's the one who originally turned me on to um, like low carb and uh, yeah. more, more, more carnivore-like diet back in the day yeah. um, before yeah. like keto was even a term. Um in the mainstream yeah. media. Um, yeah. so yeah, that's really cool. I remember his smash the fat show. Smash um, the fat I was a big fan. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so really amazing. Yeah. I mostly hang. So if people, if people want to follow me directly, um, I mostly hang out on Twitter at Jen underscore unwin. And okay. I always pop there if there's events or, you know, anything new happening. So if people do want to, to follow me there or message me there, then, um, yeah, I'm, I'll always try and help. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, Hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered, or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at CarnivoreCast, or go to CarnivoreCast.com. You can also email me at info at I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.